0: time together. It has been a pleasure to be here with you. I have truly enjoyed my fellowship, all the food and the conversations. It's been great. I just want to say thank you guys because you have truly shown a lot of hospitality and thank you for the rest. I really enjoy that house. (laughs) It has been nice. Tonight, we are shifting gears. I looked at the material that I had for you for tonight, and it is way too much. And so I talked to Pastor Matt, and I said, you know, maybe if you invite me back, we can take all that stuff that, that's there and put that into about three or four sessions. And so <clears throat> we talked about a possible future of doing something like that. So Lord willing, I'll be seeing you guys again, and we can do a part two. So with that in mind, the material is out there, and it's a lot of stuff, and I realized when I had planned to do it, I had put it in four sections at another church, thinking I could take an hour and a half to do what I've done in four hours was just not feasible. (laughs) But I did want to close out with something else that I thought was even more important to share with you than the notes that you had back there. And that is something that I think people misunderstand. And that's the reality of why do I exist? You know, people ask the question, who am I? But I think before you can ask, who am I, you need to ask, why do you exist? Because why you exist will help you understand who you are. And unfortunately, we live in a culture that is always trying to find themselves. The problem with that is they're never going to find themselves because it's not within. They're not going to find themselves because they are consumed with themselves. The scripture tells us that it's not till you die that you really live. And if you lose yourself, you will find yourself. Why? Because God himself will help you understand who you are, who you're not, and how you need to function. So in reality, the biggest In my opinion, the thing that we need to ask is, why do I exist? Why did God take the time to create me individually? And the moment that we can wrestle with that, because the reason he created you is the reason he created me, and the moment we can see that, we can recognize that we are not going to get traction in life until we fulfill our purpose. Now, there's a difference, and I'm I'm nuancing this somewhat. But there's a difference between a career and a calling. And what I mean by that is this. All of us may have various careers, engineers, doctors, lawyers, you name it, farmers, you name it. But that is a career, whereas as Christians, (coughs) we, (coughs) we all have the same calling. We are called to be ambassadors and builders for Jesus Christ. That's just the way it is. So sometimes if we're not careful, our careers can override our calling, and all of us have that responsibility, but that goes back to understanding why do you exist? I want to take some time tonight, and I want us to process that together, looking at a few scriptures, and something I try to do with my congregation is this is what I call the foundational message for new beginners, a foundational message for those who come to the church. And what I tell them is, I want you, before you begin to get connected to our body, I want you to understand a mission that God gave us. When people have been broken over their sins and they're moving towards repentance, I try to give, <clears throat> give them this message, to me get my water here. <clears throat> When they're ready for change, I give them this message because when you get serious about your calling, when you get serious about why you exist, I believe this message kind of pulls everything together, simplifies for you and I what we need to be thinking about. So here's the question, what's the purpose of life? Why do you exist? And let me start with the most simple answer, and let's unpack that simple answer together. As you look at point number one, we were created to bring glory to God in all aspects of life. Now, I want to unpack this idea of glory because it's such a churchy word, and we hear it a lot, but I want to bring glory down to what it really means. But as you look at these passages, Isaiah 43, verse 7, tells us, and we jump right in the middle of a context, he talks about his creation or his people, and he says, whom I've created for my glory. You turn into Romans chapter 11, verse 36, he says, all things are from him, to him, and through him, to him be the glory. You you flip over to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, it talks about who Christ is and how we were created for him. You turn to 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he says, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You look at 2 Corinthians 5, and you look at verse 9, and, and Paul says, we make it our ambition, whether dead or alive, to be pleasing to the Lord. You go to 2 Corinthians five fifteen. he says that Christ died that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them. You go to Matthew chapter 5, <clears throat> verses 14 to 16, you are the salt of the earth. You are to do all things and let your light so shine that men might see your good works and glorify your father who's in heaven. You and I exist to bring glory to God, but let's identify what that word glory means because it's important. If we catch this word, if we understand it, it moves from just being this big idea up here to something very specific, and let's walk that through together. Letter A, to glorify God, please hear me well, is to demonstrate the greatness of his character. Let that sink in for a moment. To glorify God is to demonstrate the greatness of his character. Now, how do we do that? I'm so glad you asked. Letter B, to demonstrate the greatness of his character, watch this, by functioning according to his design in all aspects of life. Do you know that God is a God of order? And do you know that every aspect of your life he has put A order as to how you are to think, how you are to speak, how you are to live, how you are to desire, how you are to relate, how you are to serve. Every part of your life, God has a order. And the more you function according to that order, the more you show the very character of God. So glorifying God is a very powerful thing, but in order to do so, that means that you and I must study what God says about every and anything and adjust our lives accordingly. And as we do, we walk in order that God has prescribed and described, and then everyone sees the very character of God as we function according to that order. But let's complete this sentence, letter C. To demonstrate the greatness of his character by functioning according to his commands in all aspects of life. As a biblical counselor, when people come to me for issues, as soon as they begin to tell me what's going on, my mind kicks in, as I shared with you last night, but there's something else that kicks in. What does God have to say about what they are articulating? Does God have a lot to say about relationships? Yes, does God has a lot to say about suffering and trials. Absolutely. Does God have a lot to say about parroting? I mean, we can go down the list. And as people are articulating whatever's going on, I'm bringing it back to, Lord, what is your order? And the moment I understand what God's order is for anything that they're bringing, then my second idea is, where are they in line with this order? How far are they from lining up with the order for which things ought to be in the area in which they're talking about. Because God's glory will be on display when whatever it is they are referring to, they operate according to God's design, hence showing who he is. But once I understand what they're saying and God's order for that area, then I have to look at another area with them. Is it lack of knowledge? Is it lack of skill? Is it lack of will? if it's lack of knowledge and lack of skill, then we get together and we work through the Word of God by the power of God to show them the process of how to adjust their lives, how to align that part of their life to the agenda and the order that God has set, knowing that they can do it because they have the power of Jesus Christ. And so as much as God's order in that area is clear and they're willing, we help them line up. And as they start to function in that way, there's productivity, there's satisfaction, and ultimately God is glorified. His character is demonstrated. Any of you ever watch uh, any of those red carpet shows where they're on the red carpet or, well, you probably don't want to say it out loud, but let's say your friends. Any of you have friends that watch those red carpet shows, all right? And when your friends watch those shows, they always are saying, oh, what are you wearing this evening? Oh, this whole thing, it's a Gucci or Versace or whatever it is. But whatever they tell you, you now connect the design with the creator. And you immediately say, well, that is a Louis Vuitton, or that is a Gucci, whatever it is. And so that dress, or that suit, or those rings, you automatically connect it to the creator, the designer. We are to be the walking design for Jesus Christ. When people encounter us, They need to say, You are looking like, smelling like, talking like someone that I have heard about. We are to be the very color, the very, if you will, picture of the character of Jesus Christ. When people see you and I, and let me give you the areas, in our character, in our conduct, in our conversations, in our commitments, in our commodities, In our communion, in every connection that exists, we are to reflect the very character of Jesus Christ. And that is the purpose of our existence. You will never find happiness until you pursue holiness. And you will never pursue holiness until you recognize that your life is not your own. We have one purpose For our existence, one purpose only, and that is that through our lives, God's character is on display. Now, why is that important for you and I? Because the more you live for yourself, the more you're living inconsistent with why you were created. Now, once you think about this theologically, and let this sink in for a moment, did God create anything to live for itself? Is there anything from Old Testament to New Testament, anything that God has created to live for itself? And the answer would be, so did God create any person to live for itself, to live for him or herself? So then when you are selfish, what does that reveal about the life you're living? When you are consumed for yourself, what does that live or show about the life you're living? Nothing was created for itself. The more you live for yourself, you're living a subhuman existence. Let that sink in. It's a subhuman existence. Because nothing was ever created for itself. Even your marriage or every relationship that you encounter, it was not created for you. You say, but what about Adam and Eve? Boy, you guys are sharp. You're asking the tough questions. Well, let's explore Adam and Eve. God said to Adam, it is not good for man, or he said out, it is not good for man to be alone. But then he defined what he meant by him being alone. Adam was not lonely. Adam was alone. And then he said, I will make him a helpmate suitable the reality was man couldn't get the job done alone. He needed a woman. Let that sink in for a moment. Adam wasn't lonely. He just couldn't complete the job without the woman. What are we saying? Her existence was because apart from her, there was an agenda that God has set that needed more than one person to get it done. He didn't need her because he was lonely He needed her because the agenda that God had set could not be accomplished apart from her, and together they could do something that couldn't be done apart. There was an agenda that was bigger than the relationship, and most people don't get that. They believe that the relationship is for the relationship, and when I do premarital counseling or when I counsel couples who are in trouble, I ask them one simple question. Tell me your mission statement for this marriage. And just like you're looking at me, that's how they look at me. And I say, you don't have a mission? And I already know this. You don't have a mission statement for your marriage? Well, no. And premarital counseling, they're really confused. You're supposed to have a (laughs) mission. I do it on purpose because I want them to understand something. And I ask a very simple question. What is it that you were meant to do together that you couldn't do apart, which is why you're getting together? What's the agenda that has been set by God that needs the both of you to accomplish together? And they just kind of look at me strange because they've never thought about it. I said, Well, go back to the garden. And let's go back to Adam for just a moment, because there are some things that Adam had first before he got the woman. If you go back to Genesis two fifteen, God gave Adam work. God gave Adam his word. God gave Adam a warning and then he got the woman. You notice that? So with the work, there was purpose. With the word, there was guidelines and guardrails. With the warning, there were consequences. So there was something that God gave Adam to do that was bigger than himself, and that was more about the glory of God and less about Adam. And in doing that work... There was something that Adam was missing. He was missing the woman, not because he was lonely, but the job that needed to be done required community, required something bigger than himself, required two people to be together to do something bigger than themselves. Bringing glory to God means that you're no longer living to please self. No relationship that you have was just for you. And the moment you see it that way, you've missed the purpose of your existence. Many couples struggle because they've forgotten this simple reality. They have reduced the marriage. They have reduced the relationship. They have reduced life to themselves. And if life is reduced to you, then when you get into a relationship, then who's the center of the relationship? All alert, you. You. Any reason you get into something is the reason you leave something. If you get into something for selfish reasons, you will get out of it for selfish reasons. If you get into something for God's glory, you'll only walk away when God cannot be glorified. But the reality for you and I is that our purpose is bigger than our personal happiness. It's about God's holiness. It's about God's glory through our lives. That's why you exist. And if you look at the problems that you are facing in life, the relationship struggles you're having with others, if I were to start here and we have a conversation, you would begin to see that God's glory is not the center of the situation. So the real question for you and I, as we look at life, we think about why do I exist? You exist for one reason and one reason only to bring glory to God. Now, before we go any further, I've said a whole lot. You know the routine by now. What are we going to have? Commercial break. You got it. All right. Take a couple minutes. Look at these passages of Isaiah. Look at this definition of glory. Think about what I've just said and the implications for your life individually, for your family, for your marriage, you name it. Why would this be important for every aspect of life? Take about two or three minutes. When we come back, we'll move from the purpose of life to the objectives for life. All right, take a few moments. All right, back to our regularly scheduled program. I want you to really think about this, and I want you to think about it in terms of the practicalities of it. When I'm working with new Christians, this is one of the first things I teach new Christians. When I'm working with people who've been in the ministry or been Christians for a while, this is one of the first things I bring them back to you, because you know what's happened? There's been mission drift. And when there's mission drift, you begin to hone in on the ministry, but not the reason for the ministry. You begin to hone in on all the details of life, and you forget the reason why God created you from the beginning. You begin to hone in on the weeds of your relationships and not the purpose of your relationships. And so every now and again, I have to stop, drop, and roll with people and say, stop. Let's go back to the basics. Let's go back to the reality of why you exist. And what you'll discover when there's mission drift, you have reduced the relationship. You have reduced the situation. You have reduced life to yourself. And the reality is God did not create anything for itself. It reminds me of one year my wife and I were on vacation. We had the privilege of going to the Bahamas. And we got into this little canoe, and I'm to this day I don't like canoes. As we were in the canoe, I didn't know there was a little hole in the boat. And we weren't paying attention to the hole in the boat because we were just kind of, you know, in the boat. But I don't know if you've ever had this happen, but it was so subtle. We were drifting so far away from the shore that we weren't paying attention to how far away we were drifting. We were just caught up in the things around us, and we had drifted so far away. And I looked down, and I noticed that water was slowly coming up from the back. So to keep my wife from freaking out because I didn't want her to freak out, I said, honey, you know what? Why don't we start to go back towards the shore? She said, oh, it's so beautiful. I said, I know, but why don't we start? And let's start kind of (laughs) down. Okay. And so as we kept getting back, she was like, but I just want to, I said, oh, honey, I know you do, but let's just keep going and let's keep going back towards the shore. And the closer we got, it started to go under. She said, you were trying to keep me from being scared, weren't you? I said, yeah. And we were so far out. We had drifted so far that if we'd have stayed out there, we would have went under. And neither one of you are very good swimmers. And the sea of life. We can drift from the purpose of our existence to the point where we get caught up in the weeds of life and forget That life has always been bigger than us and life was never meant to be centered on us it was always about the glory of God and if we're not careful we can drift so far that we could start to sink so in reality you and I must always remember the purpose of our existence the purpose of life is to glorify God now from that purpose there are objectives. And as I work with my ministries back at home, we have this thing called POPs. POPs stands for Purpose, Objectives, Process, Structure. And so anytime someone wants to do a ministry at our church, we walk through the POPs. Purpose. Why does this ministry exist? Objectives. What are we always trying to accomplish? Process. What will we do In order for this to happen structure what are the types of descriptions that we need of staff in order to make this work and so from the POPs if we take that back to our lives and we think about POPs purpose of a purpose why do you and I exist objectives what should we always be trying to accomplish Process. How do we get through that? And then structure. What should that look like? And we're trying to do that today so that as we look at the Christian life, as some of us may have drifted a little bit, we get back to the fundamentals. We get back to the reality of our purpose, our objectives, our process, our structure to the glory of God and the benefits of our lives. So we've talked about the purpose of life. So the objectives of life, and the objectives, we're trying to answer one simple question. What are the overarching goals I need to accomplish to fulfill my purpose? In other words, if this is why I exist, what should I be doing to fulfill the purpose? What should I overall be doing all the time? What should be the focus of my life in order to fulfill the purpose of my existence? Boy, you guys ask some tough questions. I'm so glad to answer Again, we are moving forward in the process of seeking to please God. So what are the overarching goals I need to accomplish to fulfill my purpose? You are to focus on pleasing God through seeking. We're going to look at these three things. But before we do, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. We talked about it. I quoted it a little bit, but I want us to go there. Because the objectives or the objective of your life is the thing that you're always trying to do in order to fulfill the purpose for your existence. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I love what Paul says here as he's talking to us of uh, this particular church and to us specifically through this passage. He says in verse number 9, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, that's important, our ambition, this is what we are always trying to accomplish. This is our agenda. We have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, home means here on earth, or absent being in the presence of God, to be pleasing to him. He says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Here's what Paul is saying, whether dead or alive, my objective is to please God. Now, let them sink in. Whether dead or alive, my objective is to please God. My life is about pleasing God. Why do I exist? Purpose of my existence is to glorify God, to demonstrate the greatness of his character by functioning according to God's design in all aspects of my life according to his commands. Well, what are my objectives in order to fulfill that purpose? In order to do that, then my objective is to please God in all aspects of my life. Notice what he says in verse 15 in the same chapter. He says, and he died, personal pronoun he being Jesus Christ, died for all so that they who live might no longer live for whom? Themselves. But for him, personal pronoun Jesus Christ, who died and rose again on their behalf. Why do you exist? To bring glory to God. What's the objective of your life? To please him, period. How do we please him? I'm so glad you asked. There are three key objectives that we should be focused on for all of our existence. And I talked about them when we first began. I thought it would be helpful to close with them. And that is our socialization with God. And that's what we see in letter A, to know God intimately. John 17, 3, as we've mentioned before, this is eternal life, that you may know the Father and the Son whom he hath sent. Let this sink in. Your objective, what you're always trying to accomplish in life, is to know God intimately. And what does it mean to know God intimately? Again, just not intellectual understanding, but truly embracing the attributes, the character of God in every area of your life. Here's a secret. I want you to think about this, and this is what a lot of people miss. Every sin problem you have is a theological problem. Let me explain what I mean by that. Every sin problem you have is a theological problem. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to him must believe that he what? Is, and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Well, think about that for a moment. Who is he? He is a lie. Of different things, would you agree? He's holy, he's sovereign, he's supreme, he's wise, he's loving, he's righteous. I mean, we can go on and on and on, but it says, faith says that I believe that he is, and I'm seeking to pursue him according to who he is. Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, that makes sense. If the desires of your heart is him, guess what you get? As a reward, you get him. Now, no charismatic say something else. Name it and claim it, call it and haul it, grab it and bag it, and if you just delight God, to give you what you want. Well, they missed it. If I'm delighting, I'm delighting in him. And guess what he rewards me with? More of him. Psalm 1611 says, in his presence is fullness of joy and in his right hands of pleasures forever. Our number one objective in life is to get to know the character of God. So watch this. In Romans 14, around the last verse, it says, anything not done in faith is sin." Now, we're going to tie this together for just a moment. Anything not done in faith is sin. So what are we saying is this. Every time you sin, there is some characteristic to the God you may know, but you do not trust. Because if you trusted that particular characteristic, you wouldn't be walking in that particular sin. Now, let me give you an example. I'm about to trick you. What am I about to do now? I'm about to trick you. If you believe that God is sovereign, would you raise your hand? If you believe that God is supreme, would you raise your hand? If you believe that God is sufficient, would you raise your hand? If you believe that God is an all-wise God, would you raise your hand? Okay, then, stupid question. Why did you get angry yesterday? Another stupid question. That thing that you've been worried about, why are you still worrying about it? That, that person you're still holding a grudge against, why are you still holding a grudge? See, If you truly embraced the reality of those things, many attitudes that you have, you wouldn't have. If God was truly sufficient in your life, would you have a temper tantrum if you didn't get something you wanted in life? If God is truly loving and all wise, would you question him by worrying when something doesn't make sense to you? Think the reality is we have an intellectual understanding of those attributes, but our sin shows that we don't trust those attributes because if we trusted those attributes, we wouldn't be walking in those sins. Our sins expose where we are, not in the understanding intellectually of God. It shows where we are in truly having intimacy with God because every sin reveals some attribute of God that you may know, but you have not embraced in your heart or you wouldn't be sinning in that area of life. And the number one objective for us is to know God intimately. Why do you think he's allowing those trials and that suffering, and all of those things in your life, because one of the central things he wants you to see is, do you know who I am? Will you accept who I am? Here's the reality. The God of your imagination meets up with the God of reality when you're in a crisis. The God of your imagination will never let you hurt. The God of your imagination will never let you suffer. The God of your imagination always does what you want when you want. The God of your imagination keeps you from everything that you are uncomfortable with. The God of your imagination always comes through exactly the way you want. But the God of reality will hurt your feelings if it will build your character. The God of reality will make you wait if it'll lead you to worship. The God of reality will allow things in your life you never thought you could handle. The God of reality will allow suffering because he is working out his ultimate goal in your life. And you've got to decide, will I accept the God of reality, or hold on to the God of my imagination, and there when the crisis of belief comes, and will you seek to know him? Or will you run from him? Nothing happens in your life, happenstance. Nothing And the reality is the number one objective, because it is leading to you pleasing him, is that you know him. And I'm not talking another Bible study of intellectual understanding about the character of God. I'm saying in the very moments of your pain, you start to identify which attribute of God should I be embracing right now? Not just intellectually, no. Now, why is that so important? Because if you think about all of the sin that we have in our lives in a particular area, and you think about all of what we know about God, there's a disconnect between our intellectual understanding and our true faith. Hebrews eleven six. Now, you see the connection, guys? Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to him must believe that he what? And in your particular situation in life, There is some attribute of God he's trying to get you to embrace. One of the things that my wife and I have been growing through and going through for years is accepting and embracing that God is faithful. It was a struggle more for me than I think for my wife. Because when our bank account got to a certain level, my stress got to a certain level. When our bank account rose to a certain level, I got more comfortable. You know what God had to show me? You trust way more in money than you do me. I need to show you that I'm faithful. And there were many times when we didn't have enough and I was freaking out. And it started to happen so much that I had to sit back and say, wait a minute, God, you're trying to show me something. I don't understand. What is it about you that I'm not grasping? And the more I studied and the more God made it plain, you don't believe that I'm faithful. So you know what? You're going to keep suffering in these areas until you embrace how faithful I am. And over the years, as the pain and the reality of God's faithfulness start to come together, I started resting in situations. We at the church that I'm in now. We were in a situation where we needed $50,000 because we had no more money left. We had accessed everything we could as a church, small church, get our first real building, and everybody had given everything they could. And I'm sitting there going, okay, (laughs) what do I tell this congregation? What do we do now? I said, Lord, what are you trying to teach me about you? And I had to remember, as I've been working with you in your private life, I'm going to show you in the public ministry I gave you that I'm faithful. So as we were coming to the end, I called a friend at a church, and I was telling him my situation. He says, hey, um, let me call you back in about 24 hours. I'm thinking, okay. I get a call. You'll have a check for 50000 in the mail to take care of what's happening at the church. I said, well, uh, what? It's in the middle. And I fell on my knees. I said, you got jokes, God. You were humbling me because I was freaking out about the very error you've been trying to show me privately. You're going to show me publicly. You are faithful. And as I brought that to the congregation, I said, listen, guys, as we have come to the end in many places We've come to the end of ourselves so that we can embrace the reality of our faithful God. Let me show you what our faithful God has done because he loves us and his agenda is clear. And why am I saying that to you? Many of us don't understand. That's the first objective that we should always be pursuing. And in your life where you have the most problems, think about the attribute of God that if you were truly embracing would you be stressed? Would you be worried? Would you be angry? Would you be nervous? Would you be freaking out? Or would you be resting as the disciples should have been on the boat? It should have been if Jesus is asleep through all of this, maybe we need to sit and be still since we can trust him. But they didn't trust him. Why do you think he allowed them to get in that boat? Why do you think he's allowing you to be in the boat that you're in? There's something about him that right now in your life, you may know intellectually, you may have studied for years, you may have understood it, but you've not yet embraced it. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that you may know. And again, that word know is not just intellectual, that you may know a intimate embracing an intimate reality that I am confident in this attribute of God in my life. So the first objective, to know him. The second objective that we should always be working towards in life is to become like Jesus Christ to maturity in all aspects of life. And this is the sanctification in Jesus Christ. That's when we get into the put-offs and the put-ons and to, again, to look at the character areas and the areas of our life where we need to stop things and start things. These are the central objectives for our existence. Why do we exist? To glorify God. That's the purpose. What are our objectives? What are we always trying to accomplish? To know him, to become like him. And then thirdly, to be useful to God, service for God. Useful to God is not just ministry activity. I cannot stress that enough. It's relationships, relationships, relationships. God works through relationships, not just ministry activity. God meant for you to be a community that works together, that through the relationships that you are building, people get saved and people grow up. And as these objectives are being accomplished by you, the purpose for your existence becomes real. But when these objectives are not central, the purpose of your existence is not central. Let's take a few moments. Walk back. Why do I exist? What are my objectives for my existence? Take about two or three minutes. Look at those points, number one and number two, and then we'll come back to look at the process. Remember what we're doing. We're doing a POPs, purpose, objectives, process, structure. Take a few moments. Talk with each other. Ask your question, why should this have anything to do with me? So what? Take a few moments. Talk to each other. All right, guys, are you getting a picture? This is what I call Christianity 101. This is what needs to be guiding and guarding our lives until he returns. So if someone were to ask you, what is the purpose of our existence? To glorify God. What are the objectives that we need to accomplish in order to fulfill the purpose of our existence? We need to know him we need to become like him we need to be useful to him as we know him and become like him and be useful to him we will fulfill the purpose of our existence which is to bring glory to God but then the third question is okay how do we do this what's the process what steps do I need to take to accomplish my goals to fulfill my purpose and it's one particular way that we do this consider this you must hear what to obey and then obey what you hear from God's word in all aspects of life. Let me say that again. You must hear what to obey, and then obey what you hear from God's word in all aspects of life. James 1.22, let's look at that together. Verse 22 to verse 25. You must hear what to obey, and then obey what you hear. This is the process. Notice what we're doing systematically. Why do we exist? To glorify God. What are we trying to accomplish? What are our objectives? To know him, become like him, to be useful to him. So how do we do that? We must hear what to obey and then obey what we hear. In James chapter 1, verse 22 to verse 25, he says, But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. But once he has looked at himself and gone away he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, that man will be blessed in what he does. Proverbs 3:5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your what? To trust means to rely upon, rest in the very Elohim, the self-existent God, starts from the beginning of the heart. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust starts from within. What does it mean by the heart? Trust in the Lord. Rely upon him with all of your mind, with all of your will, with all of your affections. Do not lean on your own understanding. What are we saying there? Do not have a human observation with a unbiblical interpretation. In other words, don't look at everything in life and draw your own conclusions Look at everything in life and accept God's conclusions. Then he says, in all thy ways, acknowledge him. The Hebrew word for acknowledge there, it's a circumspect evaluation of your life. Acknowledge says this, I'm looking at every area of my life and I'm saying, Lord, what do you say? And according to what you say, I submit. That's what it means to acknowledge. I am recognizing you are in charge. I recognize everything about this world is in your hands and I want to know what you say and whatever you say, I submit to. And it says, he will make your path Straight. Straight means he'll make you morally upright, productive, satisfied. That's the reality. What's the process of life? You hear what to obey, and you obey what you hear. Can I make it really simple? Are you ready for the simplicity of this? You ready? Number one, learn the truth of God. Number two, live the truth of God you've learned. And then number three, love others through the truth of God that you have learned in a living. That's not complicated, is it? If we take this back, what's the purpose of my existence? It's to glorify God. What are the objectives that I need to accomplish to know him, to become like him, to be useful to him? What's the process of doing this? Learn the truth, live the truth, love others by the truth that I'm learning and living? That's not complicated at all, is it? And where we find ourselves in a mission drift in our existence We can trace it back to either purpose, objectives, or process. I am off base. Now, why am I sharing this with you? Because I want you to understand that the Christian life is covered by the glory of God and the goodness that he wants to bring to your life. But there is a order. You don't get to live for yourself. That is what sin was all about. Life is no longer about you. Life is about something bigger than you. Your marriage in every relationship around you was never about that relationship, it is always meant to be bigger. Your life is always meant to be bigger than your life. Because God created nothing for itself. And if we want to truly bring glory to God, then we have objectives that we must stick with until he returns. And even after he returns, we need to know him and to keep becoming like him and being useful to him. And the way we got to do that is learn what God says, live what God says and love others accordingly. That's the process that he gave us. Now, if we take all of this, We've got our purpose, we've got our objectives, we've got our process. So what's the structure? You guys ask tough questions. Let me see if I can answer that. The structure of life. How do I work this out in the context of life? What is the structure by which God will have me to fulfill my purpose by accomplishing my objectives and following the process? You must organize your life around three particular roles and responsibilities. This is the structure. This is your job description, if you will. This is when you say, as a Christian, my job description boils down to these three roles and responsibilities for the rest of my life. Letter A, you work out your role of disciple. You are to be a follower of Christ in aspects of life, in all aspects of your life, In essence, you are to follow God's commands in all aspects of life. That's what a disciple is. He is a follower. And the way your job description goes is this. As a Christian, your number one job and responsibility is to be a disciple. What does a disciple do? Anything that Jesus says. Where does a disciple go? Anywhere that God tells him by his word. What do you do? Whatever he tells you to do. Well, for how long? For the rest of your life. That's your job description. You are a disciple. You follow what Christ tells you to do. But there's another job description you have. You are an ambassador. You work this out by doing what? As one who no longer belongs to this world, but to the kingdom of God, you are to be an instrument in the hand of God, whereby through you presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ, God may perhaps deliver sinners from their sin, into a new and right relationship with God that will last for eternity. These are your job descriptions as we've talked about the purpose of life, to bring glory to God, the objectives of life, that you know him, become like him, be useful to him. How do we do this through the process? You learn the truth. You live the truth. You love others by the truth that you're living and learning. What is my structure in order to make this happen? You are a disciple. You are an ambassador. And thirdly, your builder, as one who is now a citizen of God's kingdom and a part of his church, you are to spend your life helping other Christians grow to maturity in their character and faith in Jesus Christ. What have we done? Purpose, objectives, process, structure. This is our life. Again, at our church, if anybody says, oh, I'm thinking about doing ministry, I say, you know where I'm going as your shepherd? I need a Pops. And I can help you with the Pops. No Pops, no ministry. You can't tell me why this ministry exists. You can't tell me what it always needs to accomplish. If you can't tell me the process by which it's going to get there, if you can't tell me the structure, then what are we doing? God is a God of order and we must do things decently and what? In order. But that's not just in ministry. That starts with our lives. What's the purpose of our life? What are the objectives of our lives? What's the process by which we accomplish the objectives to fulfill the purpose? What is the structure by which God has ordered us to do this? He has laid it out for us in his word. And the more we live this way, God will be glorified. We will be edified and the devil will be horrified because we'll be living the life that he intended for us. Now, before we go any further, I want you to go back. Take two or three minutes. Go back through the purpose, objectives, process, and structure together. Think about what this means and how much of your life is in line with this reality, and think about areas where it's time to make the adjustment. Take about two or three minutes. When we come back, we'll start to look at some closing thoughts about this situation. All right, gang. I hope you are looking at your life and saying, "Okay, I'm getting an idea here. I'm starting to see where I've done a little mission drift. I'm starting to see where I'm moving back on track. As I share this around the country with different people, one of the things that I always ask is this, is there anything that I've said on here that is inconsistent with what we need to be doing as Christians. And no one has yet told me no. I'm going to ask the question here, is there anything I've said here that is inconsistent with how we should be living as Christians? Anything? So the question is, why are we not making this forefront every day? Why is this not a priority? in our local communities of Christ, in our small groups, in our families, in our homes? Why is this not the second thing we guide people through? Not the first, but the second thing when they first come to Christ, because we need to make sure that we're clear that they're believers, and if they're believers, they've embraced the true gospel of Christ, then why should we not begin this as to help them understand their mission? Why should we not at the end of the week or at the end of the month or the end of the quarter sit down with our family and say, you know what, let's reevaluate the purpose, the objectives, the process and structure of our Christianity. How are we doing? Where have we fallen short? Where do we need to not make excuses and make confessions? Where are we in our mission as it relates to this? Part of the challenge that I do with the leadership of our church is I kind of drill this in them. They're probably sick of me talking about this. But I challenge them. This is the foundation of why this church exists. This, there's nothing else. There's no other reason why I'm preaching to you. There's no, other reason why I'm, there's no other reason why God's embassy, and that's what I call our church, there's no reason why God's embassy exists. It's, it's this. This is why we exist. And if we miss this, it doesn't matter how many people we bring in. It doesn't matter how many activities we do. It doesn't matter how much money we raise, how many people we send on mission trips. None of that matters if we aren't saying this is our purpose and we're submitting to that. These are our objectives and everything that we do, every aspect of the ministry comes back to this. We've missed it. If we don't look at our marriages, our families, our singleness, you name it, and say, you know what, if I was dating and this was the mission, what would be different about my dating relationship? If I'm hanging out with my friends, what would be different about us hanging out if this is the reason why we exist? It should have an impact on every area of our life. So with that being said, let's, let's look at the summary of all of this in point number five. And, and again, what I'm trying to say to you is this is the way we should view our existence. All people in the world and everybody's trying to find themselves, and find their identity. They're not going to find it. You know, I need to go away. I've heard people say this. I need to go look within and find myself. No, you don't. You need to get over yourself and let Christ show you who you are. Looking within is not going to help you find yourself because the heart is deceitfully wicked and desperately sick. Trusting in yourself is not going to work. Looking within is not going to help you. You can go away. You can go on retreats. You can go into the field. You can go in a place with monks. It doesn't matter. You will never find yourself. You must die to yourself so that God can show you yourself and to help you understand the mission for your existence. And he's laid it out for us in his word. So consider, we have been created for the purpose of knowing God, reflecting the character of God, and being useful to God. Each person has been designed with a material and non-physical aspect so that he may function on earth as ordained and commanded by God. But secondly, God has control over humans and the entire universe. People were never designed to function outside of the moral commands of God. But thirdly, the idea that a person is at the center of his own existence Inherently good and able to determine his destiny apart from any need of God directly contradicts the reality that each person is a sinner in need of a savior and cannot determine his destiny apart from the creator who has set an agenda for him. Ecclesiastes 9.1, Jeremiah 10.23, Matthew 4.4 gives us views of God as sovereign ruler, sustainer, and director of humanity in all aspects of existence. Therefore, a person does not have the ability to know himself accurately, to guide himself properly, or to grow himself or sustain himself apart from God. Let's look at these passages just briefly. Now, I just want you to focus in, just a brief look at these passages should kill any idea that we can actually control ourselves and that we can find ourselves or we can live independently of God or that we could have something apart from God providing it for us. Let's go to the Old Testament for a moment, go to the book of Proverbs, and then go one book over it, and that's how you get to Ecclesiastes. <laughs> look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 1. Look at these words. For I have taken all this to my heart and explained it, that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. Can I tell you what he just said? You don't know if you're going to be loved or hated in any given day how you'll be handled by people is always of the sovereign hand of God. You don't get to control it. Consider Jeremiah chapter 10. Let's go there for a moment. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23. Jeremiah 10, 23. Listen to these words. I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. That's pretty clear, guys. And I think we could all quote Matthew 4 and 4. Man should not live by bread alone but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now that I've read those verses, let me read letter D one more time. Ecclesiastes chapter 9-1, Jeremiah 10-23, Matthew 4-4 gives us views of God as sovereign ruler, sustainer, and director of humanity in all aspects of existence. Therefore, a person does not have the ability to know himself accurately, to guide himself properly, to grow himself, or to sustain himself apart from God. Any teaching that promotes self-dependency or even self-actualization is in contradiction to a biblical view of self-existence. You can't create yourself. How can you guide yourself? And nothing created was created for itself. Consider these words by Paul Tripp. He says, we were never made or remade to live for ourselves. We were created for transcendence. The borders of our lives were always meant to be way bigger than the borders of our lives. When we live this way by his grace, we not only become part of the most important work in the universe, but we're given back our humanity. Has there been any mission drift in your life? Do you understand the purpose of your existence is to glorify God? The objectives of your life is to know him, to become like him, to be useful to him. The process by which you do that is that you learn the truth, you live the truth, you love others by the truth. The structure that God has organized for you to walk in to accomplish this is that you are his disciple, that you are to be an ambassador and you are to be a builder of other believers. This, my beloved, is the goal and the reality of our Christian existence. So let's do this. Let's take 10 minutes, go get some snacks. When we come back, we'll have a little question and answer, All right?